0: I have two readings this morning. Uh, The first one from Ezra. I'll be reading from chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, and chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, from the uh, NIV version. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the people around them and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down, appalled. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They, too, wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up, this matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. The second reading is from the book of Malachi, chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth." The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful.
1: Have you ever asked God a question? Or maybe it was one of God's representatives or leaders. You asked them a question and you felt like you got a terrible answer. All right, maybe. Well, Dave, David was one of our launch team members when we started, and he introduced me to three of his former coworkers that were now friends. And of course, whenever I get introduced to someone, because it's one of my favorite things I smile and we chat, and then I try not to be awkward and wait till next time, when I'm probably awkward. But they came back, so that made me feel pretty good. And um, two of those coworkers came back several times. They consistently came back. They hadn't. Um, got involved in our small groups or been involved in a ministry team yet, but I was a little curious when one of them named James, he he called me and invited me to lunch. Of course, I like to do that too. So I accepted and he's like, let's meet at this diner that was this pool hall, it probably still is, hole in the wall place, complete with retro red and metallic decor, plastic booths plastic leather booths, and we sat down, and he said, you know, thanks for meeting me. I'm way more comfortable in a diner than at church, and I smiled and said, sometimes I'm more comfortable at a diner than at church, too. And I'm, I'm still learning, but at the time, I was very much learning to just smile and be patient, because there was a reason that he asked me to lunch, and so I waited, and he said... Well, I was married for 23 years, and I worked a lot because I wanted to provide for my wife and my two girls, and I did. I know I wasn't perfect. I should have said, I love you more, and I didn't do a great job of leaving work at work. But that's what happens when you're building a business and, and starting it from scratch. And I thought my wife would understand because she was running the books and sending out the bills, and I never cheated on her and I never lied to her. But that's exactly what she did to me. She lied, she cheated, and she left. And it's been 7 years and I, it still hurts. I mean, this is a big strong man. Not someone I would want to meet in a back alley. And he said I I don't know if I would Take her back. And I've always heard the church say that God hates divorce. So can I even be a part of the church if I'm divorced? I stopped counting the number of times I've been asked that question. Or a question like it. There's this thing that's in my past, and I think it's a barrier to be a part of the church. And I think questions like this deserve conversations more than just answers. But some of these conversations and questions do deserve answers, and when we receive them, we should have a good answer, an answer that aligns with the Bible, an answer that speaks life into people, and that builds the community of God. And if you're in middle school or high school, you probably haven't experienced that kind of a question, but you probably had a teacher that's either attacked your faith or planted doubts in your mind. I said, I was talking to one student who said, you know, my teacher is always talking about, or my teacher isn't always, but my teacher talked about the way that slave owners in the South quoted Bible verses to justify keeping slaves. Isn't that just one more reason how the Bible's used to do awful things? Or another student told me, my science teacher keeps talking about the theory of evolution as fact, why does science always have to go against the Bible? I would say science and the Bible are compatible and that science is not deadly to faith, but silence might be deadly to faith. See, restoration, I believe, and if if I'm wrong, let me know, but I believe it's always been a place, a safe place, where you can bring your doubts and your questions. And as long as I'm here, I will make sure that happens. Part of our values of authentic community and accepting, or accepting community and authentic people is that we can be secure people who can create safe places for questions and conversations instead of simple answers or simply silence. And when I think about the number of people who've been beat up by churches and the number of people who are hurting and broken and lost in the world who really actually need hope and help, I think that reading the Bible and living it well is absolutely critical in our world at this time. And that's what we're going to look at today. How do we read and live the Bible well so that we can be people who build God's community, the way that God wants to build it. So we started a teaching series uh, a few weeks ago called Restoring What's Broken, and we're looking at how we can be people who rebuild and bring hope to people and places in the world. And we've been looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah from the Bible as we do this. And so we pick up the story today in Ezra 7. Now, Ezra 7 is why, why we're picking it up here. Is it's been 60 years since this Persian king named Cyrus came to power, beat the Babylonian Empire, and now sent as part of an act of goodwill and trying to achieve loyalty with the conquered peoples. He sends, he sends the exiled people back to their homelands. The problem is the Two empires before that, Assyria and Babylon, they took people out and then put new people into those places. So there's already people living there. So they have to try and figure out how to go back to their land, some of which they've never been back there. So going to this new place and living as God's people, even though there's already some people that are living there. But the king generously sends them back. So 60 years later, there's a new king who's in power in Persia. And there's a new decree that's made, and there's a new generation if it's been 60 years. And so now this new king sends a new wave of people back, and he sends, as the leader of this group, Ezra. Ezra in Hebrew means help or helper, so this Persian king sends helper back to build up God's people, and he gave him millions, millions of dollars worth of gold and silver to use for their rebuilt temple and their not-so-rebuilt city. I mean, it's kind of like winning the lottery. Now, Ezra had to figure out what to do with that, but the king essentially tells Ezra in Ezra 7:18, "...you and your fellow Israelites may do then whatever seems best with the rest of the gold and the silver in accordance with the will of your God." And then he also says in verse seven twenty five, And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges, officials and rulers, to administer justice in the land to all the people in the trans-Euphrates, beyond the Euphrates River, west of the big giant desert in uh, India, I believe, or west of India, Iran, Iraq, that area. And all the people who know the laws of your God and then teach the people who don't know the laws of your God. I mean, imagine what you could do with that kind of creativity and money. donated to your God and your faith and your group. Right, I picture a giant imagination station that you know, kids could walk through that interactively animates the Bible. These spiritual like counseling center places where people can actually hear and, and sense where God is at work. And, and so our hope should be high if we hear this, right? Ezra gets to go back, and part of what he successfully does in chapter 8 is he makes sure that the right people are on board to go back. And then he leads a prayer and a fast for God's protection, because he's too ashamed to ask the king for a military escort to travel with you know, 1,500 to 2,000 people back to his homeland, of which there are bandits and robbers and all these kind of things, with millions of dollars worth of gold and silver traveling with them for four months. And he successfully does all that. They arrive in Jerusalem, back in the city of peace, where God's peace was established to bring hope and a message of truth to all who would come. And all the gold and silver is accounted for. He, he does the appropriate sacrifices. And so we're all thinking, or we should be, like, "Oh, what's next? And it all falls apart. Ezra never gets to build up God's people, at least what we're told in the story. He never gets to get creative with God's temple. He just gets sidetracked. And... Deanne read the problem that some of these community leaders tell Ezra that the people of the land, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, their spiritual leaders, have married foreign people. Now this isn't about ethnicity or race, this is about worshiping a different God and having a different faith. And we see in the rest of the story, in chapters 9 and 10, his I'll just call it a three-step solution to the problem. You don't have to write these down. It's not what I'd recommend. Um, But step one is he gets their attention. He gets their attention by having this emotionally charged, probably spiritually oriented, but emotionally charged outburst where he rips his clothes and pulls out his hair on his head and on his beard, which I think would hurt, and then he sits down in front of the temple for anyone to look at him. It's a symbol of mourning. It's to show their penitence towards God, but if he wanted to get their attention, he was successful. His second step was then, after he got their attention, he prayed to God, and he, gives the, he fell to his knees in prayer in, in uh, chapter 9, uh, verse 6, and he prayed, "'I'm too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift my face up to you, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens.'" From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hands of foreign kings, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, Lord, our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary and so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief to our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness, and he goes on to say how God has been with them through this experience, just like he was with them the first time they went through their exodus and their exile, and, and yet, what could happen? Because these people are, and then he goes to step three. Step <laughs> three. And he goes and makes one issue the major issue. Our people have married four women, just like you told Moses back in Deuteronomy. He takes a piece of the Bible, he kind of beats people up with it. He doesn't consider the rest of the Bible. He doesn't consult any other faithful followers of the time. And he doesn't actually ask God for guidance in this issue. Now, if you're skeptical or curious about why I... Went there, just hold that for a moment. I think his prayer does show us some things about sin and our situation. When he prays, he prays that sin is serious. It always affects us and other people. And that God is good and gracious and full of mercy. And if you've never heard that, I really want you to hear that today. He is. And it is serious always does affect other people. And God continues to pursue all of us in, the, in spite of that. But the reason I say that Ezra did step three this way, beating people up, not considering the rest of the Bible, not consulting any other faithful followers, and not actually asking God for guidance is sometimes that happens in our world. Pick a topic, put it in your mind, and then think about how people have done it. And and I know too many situations where people are actually scared to come to church. They're They're scared to be vulnerable. There's a woman who pulled on a sweater to hide the purple and blue and blackish marks on her wrist and forearm. And it was a warm day, but she still wore the sweater because of that, because she was thrilled that her husband was open to going to a small group at a church. And he had admitted that his drinking was a problem, and so she was hopeful. She was hopeful that in the midst of this group and this church that she would be able to share not only the physical pain, but the other pain as well. And so after some conversation and snacks and opening prayer, the leader's about to start, and this husband tentatively says, "Um, I've been struggling with some stuff. Could, Could we talk about that tonight? And instead, there's nervous stares around the rest of the group, and... And the leader says, "Ah, uh, church small groups aren't really places where you get to struggle with your faith. Um, it's where you strengthen your faith. And and so if you're struggling, you probably just have a weak faith. And so we're we're here to strengthen it. And there was some nervous laughter, and everybody opened their Bible or their study, and they started. And no one saw this." wife just shrink back as her husband got swallowed up by the couch, never to open up again. That's why this matters. That's why we have to read and live the Bible well. Because there are hurting people, there are people that are far from Jesus, there are people who are looking for hope and help. And I'm not smart enough, charismatic enough, or rich enough to change them or fix them, and I'm guessing you're not either. But I know, I know Jesus is. Jesus, who was and is the Word of God, can heal and change people. So getting people's attention and going to prayer, I don't think those are wrong things. That's what Ezra does. But the third thing he does of, and the way the book ends, I'm not just I'm not just trying to be creative with the text. The way the book ends, there's this mass divorce decree. There are women and children that are sent away. And the way it's carried out and the length of time it's carried out and the locality of where it's carried out, it seems to be neither consistent nor thorough. And the book just ends with that kind of anticlimactic conclusion. That we go, huh? I think restoration has gotten this right more than we've gotten it wrong, but I do think we've probably gotten it wrong a few times. But I want to be people that have the words of life and peace and hope in my mouth, in the word, for a world that needs it as well. And I think that Jesus calls us to avoid dilemmas like this because if you read through the Gospels, through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see that Jesus, almost with like a samurai-like skill, avoids the types of confrontations and traps that people try to put him in. And Ezra 7.10, at least according to the message, says that Ezra had committed himself to studying the word or the revelation of God and to living it, to teaching it, and to living out his, these truths and ways. And if Ezra has all of that and gets it wrong how much easier would it be for us to get it wrong? So I think we need to consider how to read and live the Bible well if we want to be people who build up God's community. Now, I think it's in here, but one way we can do this is that we can read curiously. What I mean by curious is that the Bible is this huge drama there's a setting and a conflict and a climax and a conclusion. And we can see it in mini story, but we can also see it through the whole thing. There's this beautiful garden, perfect creation. And then there's this conflict about are we going to rebel against God? Are we going to trust God? Are we going to do what he says? Or are we going to do our own thing? And as people do their own thing, you see how sin takes a toll and how the curse just continues. The rebellion gets bigger and bigger. And then there's this redemption that started, this restoration path. That starts in Genesis 12 and really doesn't conclude until Revelation 20 or 21, but climaxes with Jesus. And if we read Curious, we read it like that, like it's this epic story, like even better than the Fellowship of the Ring, the Two Towers, and the Return of the King. I'm not trying to step on anyone, but the heroes in the story are even more flawed than Marvel's superheroes, and we know they're flawed But by reading Curious, we can picture the setting and we can climb into the characters. We can keep reading to discover the climax and the conclusions and the resolutions. We can look at the beauty. We can have a repulsed reaction at the blood. And we can wonder about what's strange. And if something doesn't make sense, what I'm learning is, I'm still learning, is that it's strange for a reason. It, it's there so that we do wonder, so it kind of even gets under our skin and we just can't stop thinking about it. That's how God's spirit works, through his word. And that's how I think this book ends, right in the middle, just like it did with Zerubbabel, where they build this temple, they don't let these outsiders help, and then when they finish it, then they have this celebration but God's presence never comes and now we have this new leader come and he's going to teach God's ways and have all this uh gold and silver all these resources to to do creative and beautiful things and there's a divorce decree in The, the book ends as we go through the next few weeks we'll see that same kind of thing happen with Nehemiah And we have to ask ourselves, like, is this as good as it gets? When we read curious, we have to think, like, will God's people actually live out his purpose and his promises? And what are you trying to teach me in that, God? So we can read curiously. I think we can also read contextually. And all that means is, while it's good to read a verse here or there, there's also been a ton of damage done by people taking one verse and then slapping it on situations that it might or might not work for. And even more so, it perpetuates this idea that the Bible is just this collection of principles that we're supposed to use to live well. I don't know if you've ever heard the um, acronym, the B-I-B-L-E, the basic instructions before leaving earth. I'm just like, oh, that's cute, that's helpful. And I'm now thinking that's not cute and not helpful. Because it takes the Bible from this beautiful and mysterious and sometimes bloody and confusing book, but it turns it into this cold, like, code of conduct manual. And that's not God's story. And Ezra picked up one piece of the Bible without considering the rest of it. And yes, he did not have as big of a Bible as we did, He quotes Deuteronomy 7 about being separated from these wicked nations, Um, and its context of Deuteronomy 7 is Moses and the Israelites before they're entering the promised land. There are these wicked nations that were were there that God had already judged way back in Genesis at the time of Abraham, and so part of this was about bringing a people that were just learning how to be in relationship with God into a place where they could be easily swayed and taken away and follow other gods like they had experienced in Exodus. But now, it's 700 years later. Now there's been Assyrian empires and Babylonian empires that have put other people there. They're much more dispersed. And and some of the nations that he says aren't even living there anymore. There could be a few people there, but what he also fails to consider is Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who 150 years before Ezra gave a prophecy about settling down, creating roots, getting married, having children, seeking the peace and the, for the people and the places that they were sent into exile. That's one place he could have considered. He could have considered God's call to Abraham, who was called by God to be blessed, to be a blessing to other people and the whole world, even foreign people. He could have, he could have considered Daniel and Esther, two people that lived with, or in Esther's case, were married to foreign people who worshipped other gods, and yet they lived in the land and with people outside of God's community, and yet they still followed God. These are all possibilities of beyond that one place, because when we read a verse or two, it's way too easy to find what we already want, and it's a little bit like being really, really hungry and going and getting really cheap fast food, you know, the kind that sort of fills you up, but then you end up with a giant gut ache afterwards and go, oh, I should never do that again, hashtag Taco Tuesday, Christine. (laughs) <laughs> but reading contextually is like sitting down and feasting on this big meal the one that has several courses that you either need to sip some wine or, or scoop some sorbet in between, in between courses for where you chew your food slowly because it's so tasty and I, I realize that we can't probably do that all the time but it's about not shying away from the, the big things and the hard things and being open to the difficulties and the questions that the Bible raises. But that's why we read curiously, we read textually, it's why we read communally. We don't read alone, we read with others. Because we can't confuse reading personally with reading privately. See, when we read personally, it means I'm spending time with God And with his word, and in prayer, and in reflection, and in discussion with other people. But reading privately means I only look at my ideas. I fail to consider the ways that God continues to raise up new community that he calls us to in the story. I can't filter out my history, my influences, my situation, my needs. And yes, I believe the Bible does have messages for us personally. But when we read together, we're much less likely to misread it and misapply it. We better understand it kind of like, yes, we all bear the image of God, but together we bear the image of God better. And Ezra picked this one place, And he didn't consider other faithful followers. Malachi was a prophet at that time who was in Jerusalem, who challenged the priests to their lukewarm living, if you will, and he called them to remain loyal in their marriages and saying divorce does break God's heart. So I think for us, this is why we we read as a church together corporately on Sundays. We, we encourage reading the Bible in small groups and in Bible studies and in disciple groups. And even with online apps, you can read and discuss the Bible together. And Chad wrote a beautiful News and Notes article, if you did not read it, I encourage you to, about uh, the time that he has grown in the men's group. And I remember one of the guys saying, either to him or to me, maybe to both of us, like, oh, I would never stop going to that. That's changed my life. I never read the Bible before that group. Like, I went to church for 20 years, never actually read the Bible myself. And I found out I can read it. And it can make sense. And the last one is we can read humbly. So what that means, what I think that means, I'm sorry I couldn't figure out a C to it, so if you have one, you know, I'll change it online. But to read humbly means rather than simply reading God's word, you're asking God's spirit to let God's word read you. It's saying, I believe the Bible has authority and it has authority to change my life and I give permission and power to God to change and direct my life. See, Ezra made this issue the major issue and nowhere in the story does he ask God for guidance. The community leaders are the ones that bring this thing to him. They're the ones that suggest it and Ezra says, go for it. We never hear God giving this decree or Ezra inquiring to God about this. And so when you read humbly, you're asking the Holy Spirit rather than, gosh, those people are stupid. You're instead saying, how am I like those people? How do I get it wrong? God, what are you saying to me? And the humility is about, reading humbly is about ultimately seeing who you are in comparison to how great God is and not shaming yourself for it, but receiving his grace. Because when I sat across from this guy, James, At the diner, I said, well, I don't want to speak for God, especially about stuff he hates. But I know that he would say divorce does break his heart. And God wants to see people restored and marriages restored. But even more than that, he wants to see souls restored. So if two people can't come back together and come to him, he wants two people to come back. He wants you to be healed and be whole. He probably wants that for your ex-wife too, even if you're not there yet. Now, divorce not, might not be your, your thing today. Talked about it because it does affect us. It does affect us whether it is us, whether we came from a family of divorce or we live in a family of divorce. Or we're struggling with our adult life. Trying to figure out how to live well with each other. Whether we're married or single or divorced or whatever. And more than that, God is calling each of us into relationship with him but also into relationship with other people. And when we read and live the bible well people notice you shine the light of christ that is a power and an authority that goes far beyond you and me so as the band comes up as we just pause for a moment and let the holy spirit read us we practice what we just heard God, would you speak to us and would we be open to hear? Would you give us a heart to receive and even to change? And God, would you help us to get this right? To look at you first, to look at others next, and to look at
0: ourselves third. Speak to us, God.